church. Glad to see all of you here this morning. I don't know if you heard the news. I, I, I watched it, listened to it last night. A heat warning today, like 96 degrees. And, and uh, you know, we get a little bit of humidity and it's like, man, it's... But, I, you know, I like, I like warmth. But uh, anyway, uh, one more other announcement I wanted to make is that is um, we're switching on our online giving. So if you go online to give uh, your tithes and your offerings to the church, we're using a new company. It's called Rebel Give. They, uh, they charge a lot less than the other company. And so we're, we're switching over to that. We're going to keep both of them up there. And so if you're still using it now, that's fine. We'll keep it up there for a while until we see that, that no one else is using the old one. Everybody switched to the new one. So, But it's up on our webpage. We've also redesigned our webpage. And so that, we're working on that as well. And so uh, you might want to take a look at that. But it's all on, on that. And so uh, kind of cool with that. Well, we are in the book of Second Peter uh, this morning. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Second Peter. We're in chapter 2. And we're going to look at the first three verses. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and... Uh, uh, George will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Nice to see Greg and Valerie back from vacation. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 2, first three verses, we read, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And men will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. The title of my message this morning is, The Gloves Are Off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can spend together in your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that as we study your word, as we read your word, you bring to our attention verses, things that are said, Lord, that we need to apply to our lives individually, personally, Lord, to our church corporately. Lord, we just we thank you for speaking to our hearts through your word. We thank you for this time together. We do pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, they're yet to be born again. We pray, Lord, you'd especially touch their heart, speak to their heart, help them see their need for you, and they return to you today. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we've been going through First Peter, Second Peter a little bit, Peter's been really quite positive. I mean, he set forth qualities of a God-honoring life and revealed to us that we have everything we need to live for life and for godliness. We've, he's talked about the precious promises that we have. We've talked about our, how precious our salvation is. In fact, Peter used the word precious eight times since the beginning of 1 Peter to the end of chapter 1 here of 2 Peter. But now, the gloves are off. That's the title of my message this morning. The gloves are off. A phrase that basically means, I don't really care about your feelings. I'm going to tell you the way it is. And here in chapter 2, this big old fisherman tells it like it is. He's not holding anything back. His tone changes radically, delivering this stern, harsh warning against false teachers and the heresies that they teach. 
reminds me of a stern warning a dad gave to a boy wanting to date his daughter. It's actually a letter written years ago by a dad to Dr. Laura Schlesinger. She had a program. He writes this, Dear Laura, I am my kid's dad and I enjoy your show. I believe strongly that a protective, loving, supportive, non-abusive dad should be in every daughter's life. I have worked hard these last 16 years to be these things. However, in the last couple of years in my life, my life has become more difficult. Boys have entered my daughter's life and I've had to create rules for them to live by. I actually have given this to four separate boys. I'm a six foot three, 220 pound police officer, and it's amusing to watch the boys read these rules. They try to figure out if I'm kidding or not. My daughter takes all this in good humor and enjoys this support. I hope you enjoy this. Rules to date my daughter, Stephanie. And he goes on. Rule number one. My daughter's name is Stephanie. Her name is not Mama, Hoochie, Babe, or any other name currently in the vocabulary of your age group identifying a young woman. With her permission, you may call her by her nickname, Sam. If I hear any of these other terms used to refer to my sweet girl, you will get an immediate response from me, her father. Rule number two. I am Stephanie's father. You call me, sir. This is as in, yes, sir, no, sir, I wouldn't think of it, sir. And I will remember that good advice, sir. Rule number three. Do not touch my daughter in front of me as it may provoke an uncontrollable and probably overly aggressive response on my part. You may glance at her as long as your glances are from the neck up. Rule number four. When a woman says no, it means no. However, when Stephanie says no, it means if you do not stop immediately what you are doing, I will tell my daddy, and very soon when you are alone and least expected, he'll be standing behind you in the dark with a grin on his face, waiting for you to turn around so we can have a friendly chat with you. Number five, if you stop in front of my house and hawk, you better be delivering a pizza. If I learn you are honking for my daughter, I will come outside and twist off your honker. Also, be aware that I will be observing to see if Stephanie opens her own car door. I open the door for my mother, my wife, my daughter, and any other woman who gets in my car. You should do the same. However, if I ever get into your car, please do not open my door. Number six, a few more. I'm aware that it is considered fashionable for boys of your age to wear their trousers so loosely that they appear to be falling off their hips. Please don't take this as an insult, but you and all of your friends look like complete idiots. Still, I want to be fair and open-minded about the issue, so I propose this compromise. You may come to the door with your underwear showing and your pants ten sizes too big, and I will not object. However, in order to ensure that your clothes do not, in fact, come off during the course of your date with my daughter, I will take my electric nail gun and fasten your trousers securely in place to your waist. Rule number seven. When you meet me for the first time, please do not be uncomfortable if I stare at you. I'm only doing this so I can cement the memory of what you look like into my mind. This, of course, is in case I have to come after you for violating one of the rules. I would hate for there to be, ever be a case of mistaken identity involving an innocent bystander. Two more. Rule number eight. Please bring my daughter back home in the same shape she left in. Drive carefully. Protect her from drunks and obnoxious people. Do not coax her to try drugs or alcohol. Always be ready to use your body to get between her and any objects flying in her direction. 
Also, I expect your clothing to come back in the same condition it left in. You should know that I would not react well if I saw even one grass stain on any portion of her clothing. Rule number nine, Stephanie will always have a specific time in the evening when I expect her home. Please take this curfew curfew seriously because I will not be able to sleep until I know she is safely returned home. If you bring her home too late or, God forbid, the next morning, the camouflage face looking in the window of your car will be mine. Last comment from Dad. Young man, if you are still here after reading these rules, you must really care for my daughter. This is the way to get me on your side. Seriously, there's only one rule. This one rule is simply that you care for my daughter as much as I do. I like that. Just a father expressing his heart for his daughter, wanting her to find someone who will care for her as much as he does. Also showing that it is a serious thing to him should anyone violate his daughter in any way. Listen, God's heart is the same way towards his people. He's looking for shepherds who have his heart towards his people, those who would care for his people the same way that he does. And he gets angry at those who would violate them and take advantage of them. Well, here in 2 Peter chapter 2, we see God's heart towards false teachers against those who would seek to fleece the flock of God to try to take advantage of them. In fact, Peter will point out that they were teaching doctrines that are in direct opposition to the Word of God. Even today, there are spiritual leaders. There's movements that are feeding the churches what really amounts to poison. And they're causing their congregations to appear to have life, but in reality, they never come to life, but instead they're remaining dead in their trespasses and sins. You know, it's like having a gathering of, of thousands of cancer patients in one auditorium, and you as a doctor, you have the cure for cancer. And week after week, you tell them things to make them feel more comfortable uh, with their disease, but you never share the cure. Or worse yet, you're that doctor, instead of giving them the cure, you're giving them the slow-acting poison. Now, most of us would not question someone who spoke out of, uh, against a doctor for doing that, for giving people what would kill them. But people get all upset when a pastor speaks out or a teacher speaks out on someone in ministry or movement or teacher when they're poisoning, or they're dispersed, uh, you know, dispensing poison to the people. But I say it's absolutely necessary that we do because the Bible does. And Peter does especially here in chapter 2. So if you take your notes, I want to point out three warnings about false teachers that Peter gives to us. Number one, destruction. Number two, denial. Number three, greed. First thing we see is destruction. Peter tells us that these false teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies. Look at verse 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. On the most part, if someone stood up in this congregation this morning and said, I am a prophet of God and it's not going to rain for 40 days, I think we would all laugh and call the ushers and escort them out. But in the Old Testament, prophets were a big deal. It was the people's lifeline to God. But at the same time, there were also false prophets who would also claim to be speaking for God. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel exposed these counterfeit ministries, but the people still follow these false prophets anyway. 
Now, why was that? Well, because the religion of the false prophets was very, was very easy. It was very comfortable. It was very popular. The, the false prophets gave a message that people wanted to hear. Peter saying in the same way that there, there were false prophets, there are false teachers today coming in and they're giving messages that people just want to hear. He says that they come in secretly bringing in destructive heresies. The, the word secretly bring means to introduce or bring in craftily, slyly, subtly. Uh, it's a subtle deception. You know, for, for Peter's time, and, 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 you know, it wasn't a blatant thing. You know, they didn't stand up and say, here I am, I'm teaching heresy. Hope I don't get caught. No, they would secretly come into the fellowship and craftily bring it into the church and with subtle deception, a word here, a whisper here, a word there, mixed with a little truth, but it's deadly poison. Subtle deception, secret heresy. Secret heresy. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing so many problems in churches today is we've forgotten that we are in a battle and Satan, his ways haven't changed. What was Satan's original tactic there in the garden? Subtle deception. Secret heresy. Satan came to Eve and sought to get her to do what God told her not to do. And he did it by questioning the very word of God. He said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responded, well, not exactly. Just this one. If we eat from it, we'll die. Oh, come on, Satan said. You won't die. You'll be like God if you eat. In other words, his message was that God is holding out on you. You need to do something. And his message hasn't changed. He still seeks to deceive people the same way. Spreading lies about God's word or adding to God's word or taking away from God's word. Using false teachers to come against God's word. And I would say we've seen really an attack on the first really 11 chapters of the book of Genesis like never before in our time. Satan has convinced people, you know, there's multiple genders. Yet what does the Bible say in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 and 2? This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in his likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. Satan has convinced people today that same-sex marriage is okay. What does God's word say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2, 23 and 24. Satan has convinced people today that homosexuality, that, that God approves of it. But what did God's words actually say? Leviticus 18, 22. Do not practice homosexuality. Having sex with another man as with a woman is a detestable sin. But that's not what we're hearing today from, those, from even from certain churches. Yeah, Peter's saying they're secretly bringing in these destructive heresies, but I don't think it's a secret anymore. I mean, they're out blatantly, outright bringing it out. It's open in churches today. And there's things that we're seeing today that we've never seen before. A few things I want to mention. There's this, what's called progressive Christianity, deconstructionism, critical race theory, wokeism. You know, we've all heard of the term woke, which is in and of itself is, is not a bad term. It just simply means uh, to alert to injustice in society, especially racism. That sounds fine and good. Nothing wrong with being aware of injustice and oppression. After all, the Bible does say a lot about how God's people ought to respond to injustice. But that's not what's happening today. 
while being woke may sound like a good thing, it's used by those critical race theory advocates to turn our culture into an entirely secular culture, to remove God completely out of our society. But you don't hear that. But you do, as a result, see these destructive heresies like critical race theory being brought into evangelical, church, evangelical churches to the point where they're accepting these ideas and even preaching about them from the pulpits and small groups. You remember when all this first got started and we started hearing things like, all white people are racist. That in and of itself is a racist thing to say. We heard of Pastor Max Lucado asking forgiveness for his Christian white supremacy. According to Dr. Bauckham in his book Fault Lines, Pastor David Platt delivered a message from Amos 5 and then repented in tears for his white privilege. I've said this before. Yes, God has called us all to repent and turn from our sin and turn to Christ. But you can only repent of your sin, your own sin, not from sins that others committed some 200 years ago. And yet more and more pastors are becoming false teachers as a result of this CRT and this woke and have thrown doctrine and truth right out the window and replaced it with whatever people want to hear. And all of this is destructive heresies and it's a distraction from the true gospel message. A couple more things that we see in the church today being spread by false teachers. Perhaps you've heard of this deconstructionism and, and progressive Christianity. Deconstructionism comes from a 1960s French philosopher, Jacques Derrida, a literary critic whose goal was to dismantle previously held religious beliefs. Now we see deconstructionism happening in our nation today uh, with the history of our nation, with our, even with our constitution is being deconstructed, the laws in our land, and, and it really has swept up in the evangelical Christian world as well. We're seeing many young people raised, that were raised in the church are now dismantling previously held beliefs, deconstruction. We're seeing widespread across, this widespread across all avenues of social media where we're seeing worship leaders denouncing their faith, pastors renouncing their faith. And as they deconstruct their faith, they become emboldened or self-empowered to let you know that believing what the Bible says is outdated and it's out of touch with the, the culture and society today. They'll say things like, well, Jesus didn't mean what you thought he meant. This is what he truly meant. And because they deconstruct their faith, if they had any at all, they are now reconstructing what they, they think, what they want to believe based off of how they feel or how they think. And that leads to what we're seeing also in the church is progressive Christianity just as dangerous as deconstructionism. Progressive Christians say things like, well, the Bible is the only human book expressing people's experiences of God, but it's, it's not from God, they'll say. Or they'll say things like, well, that's what the Apostle Paul said, but, but what did Jesus say? And the exception being, uh, you know, both statements is that we get to judge which parts of the Bible are true and authoritative based upon our Western ideas and culture. Another thing we see going on with progressive Christianity is, is feelings are overemphasized rather than facts. Progressives sometimes say things like, oh, I don't, I'm not really feeling that verse. You know, that, that verse just it doesn't resonate with me. What they're really saying is that no verse can be true unless I feel like it's true. A clear sign of progressive Christianity is when essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation, much like deconstructionism. Progressivism challenges core doctrines of the Christian faith. Let's take love and hell as an example. 
Progressives often define love to mean uh, the acceptance of every evil practice, indulgence, lifestyle. Hey, well, we love each other, and I love you, and you love me, and this is great. But in so doing that, they have to redefine the many things Jesus said about hell. They misapplied the true nature of Christian love and undermined the justice of God. Yeah, God is love, but God also is just, and sin must be judged. Rob Bell, he was a huge progressive pastor, now retired. He wrote that book, Love Wins, and it denied the teachings of hell in the Bible. Now I read he's moved to Hollywood and works for Oprah Winfrey and serfs. Doesn't surprise me. Spread his lies and false teachings and moved on. But whenever you hear people playing interpretive games with Scripture, arguing about, well, that's your path or my path or what this verse means according to what I think, you can be pretty sure that someone is trying to make the Christian faith align with their self-inspired, self-centered lifestyle. There's a term for that. It's called eisegesis. It's the interpretation of a text by reading what you want it to say, reading into it what you want it to say. I'm going to name a name here. Let's take, for example, he's a Washington, D.C. progressive pastor, false teacher, Brandon Robertson. Maybe you saw this in a TikTok video. He took the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and turned it around for his narrative. He begins by asking the question, did you know that Jesus helped his friend Lazarus come out? And then he goes on to say this quote, his words. Lazarus was locked up in a cold, dark tomb wrapped in burial cloths left for dead. That is exactly what so many Christians and churches do to LGBTQ people. They wrap us up, up and bind us up and tell us to keep our identity, our true self locked away. But Jesus, upon seeing Lazarus in this state, he says, Lazarus, come out, step into the light, take off the cloth, be who you are, come alive. He goes on. I believe this is what Jesus is speaking to every LGB person. Come out of the tomb of shame, take off the chains that have bound you up, step into the glory of who God made you to be, fearfully and wonderfully made, just as you are, you are beloved of God, end quote. Blasphemy, heresy. Yeah, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, we are beloved by God. But we also were dead in our trespasses and sin. And we need to turn from that sin, not embrace it. Then and only then will Jesus save us. False teachers, they'll always have a little bit of truth mixed with the lie. That same man, after the leak of the draft majority opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court that would overturn Roe versus Wade, he put on his clergy collar and stood shoulder to shoulder with other protesters outside the Supreme Court building. Listen, if you want to hold those ideas in your head, then you're lost and you certainly need Christ to be born again. And if you're claiming the name of Christ and supporting abortion and supporting homosexuality, then you're a false teacher. I like what Pastor Chuck said years ago. He said, the trouble is if people want to swim through the sewer with their mouth open, that's their business. But what they want to do afterwards is to get out and shake all over me, and that makes it my business. And I would add to that because we must speak out against it. Even at times, name names. Another core doctrine progressive Christians twist is the atonement for our sins, the work of Christ upon the cross. Scriptures teach clearly that Jesus was crucified to atone for our sins. But the progressives argue that Jesus' death was merely martyrdom. The Scriptures claim that Jesus is divine, but progressives often only emphasize the humanity of Jesus. The sinfulness of mankind is downplayed by progressives who tend to think that all people are basically good and not really in need of salvation. Progressivism 
always ends with disaster. Progressivism leads to unbelief. So does critical race theory, wokeism, deconstructionism. All are just a small taste of the poison being spread by false teachers in churches today. Now, let me say this. There are actually some parts of deconstructionism that are actually good to deconstruct. You're going, what? You just got through saying this is bad. Listen, if you're holding on to anything in your life that is not of the Lord, you need to deconstruct it. You need to let it go. Paul says, lay aside every weight and sin that does easily beset us. Deconstruct it, get rid of it, and put on Christ. If there's anything that is wrapped up in your belief that is not founded in the Word of God, you need to get rid of it. Deconstruct it. Any unbiblical practice that you have in your life needs to be deconstructed. If your view of Jesus is that He was rich and He means for you to be prosper financially as long as you do X, Y, and Z, you need to remove that. Deconstruct that view. If your view is that Jesus plus speaking in tongues, then you need to remove that. If it's Jesus plus not eating certain foods or Jesus plus only meeting on certain days or Jesus plus going to door, then you need to remove those things because Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus is the only way in which we are saved. Now let me say this as well, and this is important. Just because a message is taught by someone in a big church doesn't make the message true. There are huge churches out there today, folks, that are led by false teachers teaching a false gospel. And again, just because a message is taught by someone in a big church doesn't make the message true. And just because something is popular, that doesn't make it right. In the 70s, streaking was popular, but that's just not right. It wasn't right. In the same way, just because there there may be thousands of people watching or listening to some charismatic speaker, it doesn't mean what they're speaking is pleasing to the Lord. Joel Osteen talked about him before. Very popular Lakewood Church, 16,800 seat sanctuary. According to Wikipedia, approximately 52,000 people attend the services week after week. It's the largest church in America. That doesn't mean what he's teaching is truth or is God's word. When he taught on the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden and brought up when after they'd sinned, God said, Adam, where are you? And they said, God, we were hiding because we were naked. Here's what he taught. Again, I said Jesus. It's the interpretation of a text by reading into it one's own ideas. And he said this quote, I love the way God answered them. He said, Adam, who told you that you were naked? In other words, who told you that something was wrong with you? God immediately knew that the enemy had been talking to them. God is saying to you today, who told you that you don't have what it takes to succeed? Who told you the best grades you can make in school were C's rather than A's? Who told you that you're not attractive enough? Who told you that your marriage is not going to last? Who told you something was wrong with you? Those are lies from the enemy. You need to reject those ideas and discover what God says about you. No, Joel. God didn't ask Adam and Eve who told you that something was wrong with you. Scripture is clear that something was wrong with them. They had sinned against God who commanded them not to eat of the forbidden fruit. God was confronting them with their sin, not comforting them in it. And instead of explaining the origins of sin in our world and how Jesus is the Savior promised in Genesis 3.15, Ocean thinks God merely wanted Adam and Eve to feel better about themselves. I can only think that such teaching would make Satan smile. Joel seems a very popular pastor. 
largest church in America. But if a person follows his philosophy and teachings, they could very well end up in hell. Listen, every message out there today by false teachers revolve around man. It puts man in the center. That man is basically good and we just need to discover our own goodness and unleash our human potential. Follow your heart. Even though the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that man without Christ is hopeless and his heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Learn this. The ultimate difference between a true teacher and a false one is this. A true teacher preaches the message of the cross. That man is a sinner in need of a savior. The false teacher centers on self. So the danger from a false teacher, point number one, is they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Point number two, denial. Question, why did baby Moses believe he was an Egyptian? Answer, because it was in denial. Just a little comic relief during a very serious study. You guys said that was very little. Very, very little. Listen, the second danger that comes from a false teacher is denial. They deny the one who bought them. Look at verse 1 again. Peter says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought, the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Peter refers to Jesus as the Lord who bought them. Understand, mankind is likened in the Bible to being slaves. Before coming to Christ, we were slaves to sin. Whatever our sinful desires were, we acted upon. And now, slaves, in the Bible times, you know, just like slaves, could be bought out of slavery. They could be set free. And that's what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross at Calvary. He set us free from the power of death and sin from the power of sin to control us. In fact, he paid the price necessary to buy and set all men free for all time. His death upon the cross makes salvation available for all of mankind. Jesus said this in John 8, 36, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But only understand, only those who by faith turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ are set free. They're saved. So when Peter says these false teachers are denying the Lord who bought them, he's telling us that they were never saved. They were really never Christians to begin with. Maybe they had professed faith at some time in Jesus and were baptized, but they were never truly born again because later on Peter will describe them as dogs who return to their own vomit and pigs who return to the mud. So it would seem from the description and from other indications that they never had a change in their nature. They were never sheep, but they remained dogs and pigs. What were these men denying about the Lord? They were denying that Jesus, who was he claimed to be, and did what he came to do. Because false teachers are better known for what they deny rather than what they affirm. They deny the inspiration of the Bible. They deny the sinfulness of man, the sacrificial death of Jesus upon the cross, salvation by faith alone, even the reality of eternal judgment, they deny They especially deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was God in the flesh. That's one of Satan's biggest lies. He knows that if people can can get people to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, he can destroy the entire body of Christian truth. Listen, Christianity is Christ. And if he is not who he claims to be, then there is no Christian faith. 
And, and, and a true cult will deny the deity of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah Witnesses. According to them, Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel. The, their theology teaches that Michael came to the earth and became Jesus. But it's not only the Jehovah Witnesses who deny who, who bought them, the one who bought them, so do the Christian scientists. According to the Christian scientists, and I've said this before, which is neither Christian nor science, they look at Jesus as a master whose primary purpose was to teach us a positive way to think and live. That Jesus is not our Jesus. Neither is the Jesus of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church, also known as the Community of Christ Church. Why? Because they deny the one who bought them. They believe and they teach that Jesus was a created being, the elder brother of Lucifer. And the more that you study the teachings of Mormonism, the more you realize their Jesus is not our Lord Jesus Christ. Buddhists teach Jesus was just a great teacher, a wonderful man, but not God in the flesh. Islam, he was a, a prophet of God, but, but not God in the flesh. Nor is our Lord Jesus Christ the Jesus of the New Age or who says Christ is everywhere. Christ's consciousness, he's in you, he's in me, he's the divine spark who just needs to be fanned through contemplation and meditation. Not my Jesus. Again, the problem with, with the teachings of other religions is they deny the deed of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He came to this earth to redeem mankind from their sins. To deny that is to deny Christ. And ultimately, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter goes on to say it'll bring on themselves swift destruction. And the sad thing that we see here, verse 2 says, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. In other words, these false teachers, they're going to be very popular, very successful in their ministry, have many followers, and they're all heading for destruction. The largest American board cult in America is that of Mormonism. began in 1830 with just six members. It now has grown into an exceedingly speed to a worldwide membership of over 16 million people. Many following their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. But that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by in it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. This brings us to our third and final point, and that is the final danger of false teachers. Is Number one, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Number two, they deny the one who bought them. And number three, it's greed. It's greed. They're motivated by greed. Look at verse three. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and the destruction does not slumber. That word for covetousness could also be translated extortion. Extort means to coerce or intimidate. To push you to give so that you'll get to intimidate you by teaching if you don't give, you're going to even lose what you got. My, how we can apply that today to the prosperity gospel preachers. So prevalent today, and they've been around for a long time. Listen, false teachers usually have an element of what they says that, that makes you think you're missing out on something if you don't do what they say to do. It's an extortion of the spirit where it would set you up to be exploited by their twisted words. And they play off of people's emotions and fears and greed themselves. People want good things to happen in their lives. People want good finances. They want good health. 
So false teachers will exploit that. Well, you want more money? Then give to this ministry. You want a healing? Then, then send in your money and we'll, you know, we'll get the special holy water to you that if you just put a dab on your head, then you're going to be healed. I read uh, some ministry that they were giving the, the so-called pieces of the cross, splinters of the cross, giving them out. And if you get the cross, you'll be healed. Well, they've given enough splinters of the cross to build an ark. But, but I mean, they play off people's desires and emotions. The Kenneth Copelands, the, the Kenneth Hagans, the Joel Osteens, the Benny Hinn, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. They promote seed faith. If we just give, you'll get. That poor, you know, older woman that, that's living off of her Social Security, just give all of that check this month. Just whatever comes in, and you're going to get it back a hundredfold. You know, if they really believed what they were preaching, then they would be the ones giving out and not asking people to give to them. But again, they play off of people's emotions and if they're not healed, then with deceptive words tell you, well, you need to dig a little deeper, give a little more, have a little more faith, and you'll get whatever you want. I read a sad story of a patient in a mental facility who opened up to a visiting pastor and began to tell her sad story. And she says this, she had fallen on hard times financially. Her landlord had threatened to evict her. She was a Christian and her church family encouraged her by telling her to have enough faith to believe God would provide the money. She needed only to speak the word of faith. They told her and God would be obligated to respond to her request. She was told that she was a king's kid and God wanted only the very best for her. While she diligently spoke what she thought was the word or words of faith, but she was evicted when no money materialized. With nowhere to go, she returned to her church for help. They told her that the eviction was her fault because she did not have the faith to believe God. And since she did not have enough faith, there was nothing they could do for her. She was in a psych ward for slashing her wrists. After all, what hope was there if God himself had rejected her for lack of faith? Listen, God had not rejected her. Her church has deceived her. And that deception was leading to her destruction. This isn't something new, folks. This has been around for a really long time. In the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church perfected this to what's called indulgences and, and uh, creating a place called purgatory. They taught that you can reduce your time of punishment for sin in this place called purgatory if, if you pay now, you won't have to pay later. And you can reduce the time that your loved one spent suffering in the flames of purgatory if you give money to the church right now. Who wouldn't want to give money to the church to get their loved one out of the burning flames of purgatory? Listen, purgatory is an evil, satanic, Roman Catholic doctrine still taught today, suggesting that a person can be redeemed after death. The Bible clearly states that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could be delivered from suffering. To say that after we die, we, we have to pay for our tone, suffer because of our sins. It's calling God a liar and saying Jesus' death was not a perfect, complete, and sufficient sacrifice. Folks, false teaching in the church is no light matter. It can mean the difference between life and death, or at least the very quality of your spiritual life. That's why Peter closes with verse 3. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and the destruction does not slumber. I like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 3. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money, but God condemned them long ago and their destruction will not be delayed. 
All I can say is I wouldn't want to be one of these guys on Judgment Day. Because God is faithful. He will judge them. The last person on earth that I would ever want to be is that person who has pushed heresy his or her whole life and is now standing before God on Judgment Day. Because to know the truth and to reject it is bad enough. But to know the truth and because of greed deliberately teach heresy, that eternal punishment is going to be, a hu- be huge, unimaginable. Why? Because they secretly brought in destructive heresies. They denied the one who bought them and they were motivated by greed. Their judgment was sure even though it had not yet come. But Peter's affirming that day will come. And we'll look at that when we get further on in the next part of chapter 2. So what's the lesson for us this morning? Number one, we need to be on guard, alert to the destructive heresies that are out there. Filter everything you hear and read through the pages of the Word of God. Does what this person is saying, uh, is pushing, does it line up with the Word of God? Is, is what they're saying, is it scriptural? Does it point people to Jesus Christ or does it point people to themselves? Number two, make sure that we are not denying the Lord who bought us. How do we do that? Well, by denying His deity, not allowing Him to be the Lord of our lives. By denying Him, by not making Him a part of our conversation. By denying Him, by not allowing Him to be the center of our lives. Finally, what is our motivation? Serving the Lord, is it greed? Do we serve God for what we can get? Or do we serve the Lord because of all that He's already given to us? The warnings in this section of Scripture should not be taken lightly. Listen, false teaching is running rampant. Everything from a blatant denial of God's Word to a subtle slight departure from from the truth can be found in churches today. Peter says, Beware of false teachers, even if their error is slight, Reject them as dangerous both to you and to the church. Listen, folks, as we close, this is not and has not been a fun study to have to share, but something we all need to hear in the days in which we're living in. Because there is so much deception in the world today. And what we believe is of utmost importance that this study has been very, very necessary. Sadly, today, thousands have wholeheartedly adopted false teaching and they've lined up in in, in masses to follow false teachers. And thousands are on their way to destruction and hell unless they turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. So we need to be sharing the truth of God's Word with them in a loving and a kind way. Love the sinner, be patient with them, share the gospel with them, to them, reject false teachers, stay away from them, don't listen to them, even if you have to bring them up by name. Most of all, pray. Pray for revival in our churches. Pray that these churches would get back to teaching the Word of God. We wouldn't have this false teaching if people, if pastors would just teach line upon line, precept upon precept. You know the truth. And to know that then you won't be deceived. Finally, maybe you've joined us this morning and you've never given your life to Christ. Let me tell you, as clear as I could be, the gospel is good news. Not fake news, good news. Jesus came to this earth, God in the flesh, died for your sins, three days later rose from the dead, and he lives to make intercession for all of us. And to be a part of that, all you need to do is be sorry for your sin, repent from your sin. Tell the Lord, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? 
Then it's a done deal. You're forgiven. Anything you've ever sinned, everything you've ever done that was wrong, God forgives you completely. Then you make that commitment to follow Him. Lord, forgive me. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. And you get into His Word, and you read, and you pray. God washes you clean. He saves you. If you die, you go to heaven. Then He gives His Word to you so you know the truth. And the truth will set you free from the, from the chains of sin and death. You no longer have to follow those desires. You give your life to Christ. You'll be set free. If that's your desire this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we can come to you and we can find complete forgiveness of our sin just, just by crying out to you, Lord, accepting what you did for us upon the cross. Lord, that you came as God as only you could. You've never sinned. You lived a sinless life. Lord, you should not have been put to the death on the cross for anything you've done. We know that you went to the cross for what we have done. You died for us so we would not have to pay that penalty. And all we need to do is come to you and, and ask for forgiveness and commit our life to you. And you'll save us. Save us from hell. You'll give us eternal life. You'll give us the truth. You'll free us from the bondage of sin and, and the slavery of, of sin. So, Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here that has not made that commitment to you, Lord, that they would today decide to follow you and you alone. They would reject all the crazy stuff that's out there and just look to you, have their sin forgiven, and be born again today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? I just want to give you that opportunity before we close to give your life to Christ to be born again today. Just lift up your hand so I could pray for you. This is all about what God wants to do for you. He wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to give you a new life. Anybody at all? I see your hand over there. God bless you. Anybody else? Again, just between you and the Lord, saying, God, I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again. A lot of lies, folks, going on in the world. Jesus said that the, the, the Bible says rather the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But you've got to come to Him in repentance. Anybody else? Just lift your hand so I can see it. Maybe at one point in your life you've gave your life to the Lord but you've not been walking with Him. You've fallen away. And you recognize that. You want to rededicate your life to the Lord. Anybody here, why don't you raise your hand so I could pray for you as well. God bless you. While our heads are bound, our eyes are still closed. just want to, to pray this prayer for those that have raised their hand. And even if you didn't raise your hand, but you want to give your life to Christ, just pray this prayer. Just repeat it after me. We can all pray together. God, I'm sorry for my sin. And I repent of it. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for every sin I ever committed. Jesus, come into my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for forgiving me that I'm now going to heaven that I am now born again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
for those